0: I'm Emily Jashinsky.
1: I'm Ben Wahengaran. I'm Will
2: Chamberlain. I'm Sir Sharma.
0: And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, YouTube. Uh, we're really excited to open, to welcome Will. Of course, you've seen him before and Saurabh today. Saurabh, welcome to NatCon Squad. It's great to have you here. We're going to start with a topic on Speaker Mike Johnson. That's right off the bat. There is a new Speaker of the House and there's some interesting NatCon implications. I think, to the speakership of Mike Johnson. I'll start by talking a little bit about that. We'll then move on to Ben, who's going to talk about the latest in the DOJ cover up for the Bidens. There's a new chapter being written every single week in real time. And uh, luckily, Ben is reading all of these chapters in real time. Uh, So Ben is going to take us through that. Will is going to talk to us about what we know on the ground war in Gaza. It has begun. We're taping this on Tuesday uh, at around noon, so things are going to change by the time we record it and the time you hear this. But uh, there's plenty to talk about in that space. And Sarab is going to talk about Hillsdale and fire, fire kind of putting Hillsdale in the crossfire, um, in the the crosshairs for not being sufficiently liberal. Uh, I'll I'll tease it that way. So I'm going to start by talking about Speaker Mike Johnson. Let's kick off with that. Uh, Mike Johnson, a name that many of you have probably not heard before. I was talking last week to people in in Freedom Caucus circles, staffers, uh, even they were sort of scratching their heads to figure out uh, who Mike Johnson exactly is, uh, what they remember of his tenure in Congress uh, in order to kind of place how he'll be as a speaker. He's not in the Freedom Caucus. It's probably fair to say he's Freedom Caucus adjacent. Uh, He was vice chair of the uh, Republican Conference. So he was in somewhat of a leadership position. He's He's been around for a while. He used to uh, be an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom. So he has a very long history of social conservatism. And my friend Chris Bedford highlighted, I think, maybe the most interesting from an Atcom perspective aspect of uh, the Johnson speakership, which is that this is the first time that Republicans have had a true social conservative speaker of the House in the a long time, uh, a long, long time. If you go back and look at Republican speakers of the House uh, through the years, having like a true movement social conservative, um, it's you know almost unheard of in Republican leadership, let alone in the actual speakership. Uh, obviously basically what happened is the conference got fatigued last week and realized that they had to settle on one person uh, who could, at that point in time, get the votes. Um, But Mike Johnson, then this is the second layer that I wanted to throw to the group. So on the one hand, you have a, a real social conservative, somebody who is actually caught a ton of flack from the left over the course of the last week as they went and dug up, you know, the opposition op-eds he wrote to Lawrence v. Texas, like going back to the early 2000s, um, being on firmly on the side of social conservatism. So he's uh, been called like a full theocrat, uh, all kinds of funny things, amusing things. But he is truly a a dyed-in-the-wool social conservative. So there's that aspect of it from a NatCom perspective. Uh, And then on the other hand, it it raises an interesting question about Matt Gates, and this is one that's been kicked around a lot on the right over the course of the last week. Now, I don't think Matt Gates had any kind of grand plan, uh, but. Replacing Kevin McCarthy with Mike Johnson uh, is arguably, on paper at least, uh, something of a win in an ideological uh, aspect or in the ideological aspect. Now, will Mike Johnson be able to fundraise like Kevin McCarthy while also sticking true to his principles? Will he be able to govern with the one person person motion to vacate rule that Pelosi got rid of, McCarthy brought back, and now Mike Johnson has to deal with, with a slim majority in the House and one person able to vacate the chair? I don't know. Uh, the Speakership was a, the kiss of death for Paul Ryan. It appears to have been the kiss of death for Kevin McCarthy. Um, and so it, that's obviously, you know, w- would Jim Jordan, would his career have survived a Speakership? I don't know. Uh, and I don't personally think Matt Gates had a grand plan. This is not the worst outcome in the world. <laughs> we don't know how Mike Johnson is going to govern, um, but man, is he actually a real conservative? And that's something I think those of us on the right are really not used to having in Republican leadership. So that's kind of a broad overview. He's he's immediately dealing with funding for Ukraine. His base doesn't want it. He had initially said some negative stuff about continuing to have the slush fund. Um, and he's now gonna have to, you know, Balance his wishes with those of uh, the intense pressures of leadership. Uh, the most intense pressure on Mike Johnson is going to come from other Republicans. It's going to come from Mitch McConnell. It's going to come from Steve Scalise. Um, it's going to come from lobbyists. So we'll see how he stands up to that. But uh, I'll toss it open to the group uh, on those particular two points. He's a social conservative, and in some sense, maybe it's it's vindicating uh, for the what did McCarthy called them the hateful eight. I don't know, I, I don't think they had a grand plan, but uh, you guys might know more. So I'll open it up to you. Um, yeah,
3: I guess I'll go ahead. Um, I think it's there's an interesting paradox here, which is that when the the conference has such a small majority and it's not very workable, the faction of the conference that gets their speaker in is the one that seems to ultimately have to make concessions. So when it was McCarthy and he was seen as part of the moderate faction, He had to make this slew of very significant concessions to the Freedom Caucus in order to get the seat, to get to get the speaker's gavel. Um, And I mean, that's because really there's just a lot of people who didn't want to moderate. Now that the social conservatives and the more conservative faction of the of the party has their speaker in, I wonder what concessions he made to the moderates to get their votes. Um, and I and I worry that, for example, we saw him give an interview where he's talking about the absolute need to defeat Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. And I think that in order to get the speaker's gavel, he may well have had to just make a deal that says, like, I'm going to support Ukraine funding. We're definitely going to bring it to the floor. Um, and I think that the, the paradox is that it's almost better in this circumstance to not have your guy be the speaker because – In order to get that, you have to give up so much on the policy front that you end up vindicating, you know, the other side's primarily policy goals. Um, So we'll see. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Mike Johnson seems like a very intelligent guy, competent, nice guy. I like him. Definitely not a rhino. Uh, But we'll see. We'll see if he actually had to make deals in order to get his chair um, that will sort of undermine the kind of America first agenda.
1: Yeah, I think I think Will describes the dynamic well of having this very small majority, maybe even a shrinking majority, depending upon how things shake out. Um, You know, there was sort of like the conservative case for Scalise that was made however many rounds back in the voting of, well, you know, if you have a Scalise, when he tries to do things that conservatives don't like, conservatives can attack and then maybe extract more than they otherwise would. Here you have the the converse of that, which is if there is a conservative speaker of the House, then does that mean that he is going to cram down the throats of conservatives things they don't like because he's one of them and he can sort of do a Nixon goes to China? Um, we're going to see that tested very quickly, obviously, on a whole slew of issues, probably beginning with Ukraine. Uh, I think it's a good sign that, In the house they are de-linking israel from ukraine obviously at the senate level it's the complete opposite and it's a a minority it seems like of republicans who are pushing for de-linking these various issues we'll see how that ultimately shakes out Uh, from what i saw in the conservative grassroots that i talked to there was uh, jubilation in large measure as a consequence of this pick My personal observation of Johnson is seeing him on Judiciary Committee. He's been very effective there, asks pointed questions, pursues the important issues. So that certainly seems like a plus. Uh, And hopefully he will allow, if anything, Judiciary and Oversight and other pivotal committees to be even more aggressive in ramping up and accelerating their work uh, in the short time left, really, in this term. He also laid out a plan for quickly moving through. The individual appropriations bill is one by one. That obviously is something that ought to be done, should be done in regular order in a Congress. And then I think maybe the most heartening thing is, to Emily's point about the social conservatism, someone who was a lawyer on the front lines on these various issues has been tested in kind of the ultimate crucible. And so hopefully that is reflected in a speaker that knows what time it is. And is willing to stand up to those uh, on so-called right and left who are going to try to do everything possible to undermine and savage him and a conservative agenda in the House. So, you know, sort of like a Supreme Court justice who gets savaged but survived. For some, it may cow them. For others, it makes them that much more tough. Hopefully the same can be said for Mike Johnson when we look back on his tenure as speaker.
2: I think Will's point about how the faction that gets their speaker ends up being the one that loses most is very interesting and true, I think specifically because the faction that gets their speaker is often the one that is least appreciated when it comes time to negotiation, because that's not who their negotiations are comprised of. I think that the contrast here that's worth making is what would have the difference between a speaker, Jim Jordan, and a speaker, Mike Johnson, been, and Everyone around Washington knew exactly what a speaker Jim Jordan would look like. It would be one where the Freedom Caucus had to, because of that long relationship, give him an extraordinarily long leash. Now, that's not to say he would have come out at the end of it a transformative conservative speaker. It was just always a concern. What Mike Johnson has created is a situation where every faction gets to act as a faction. And so Freedom Caucus gets to push on him in the ways that they need to. The moderates get to push on them in the ways that they want to and so on and so forth. And so. The biggest lesson I would give to NatCons in this moment is that who Speaker Johnson will be is being shaped every single day. And so external pressure on his policy priorities on every single issue, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's spending, whether it's trade, immigration or any other, is yet to be decided. No one should keep their mouth shut in that process.
0: With that, I'm going to toss it over to you, Ben.
2: So
1: uh, there have been any number of revelations with respect to the never-ending Pandora's box that is all things Biden family, corruption and compromise, and then the apparent efforts to cover up the crimes real or alleged. Uh, Just before we came to record today, last night there was actually reporting uh, based upon FOIA litigation that some 82,000 pages of emails that then Vice President Biden sent or received during his tenure then uh which were executed via three private pseudonymous addresses uh to carry out private and or public business uh exist and are being collected by NARA by the National Archives which isn't it odd that NARA is so involved in so many of these contentious issues that we're seeing? It's always these uh, oddball kind of agencies that no one cares about that actually serve as the tip of the spear of major scandals. But in any event, 82,000 emails, which dwarfs, I think, in page numbers, Hillary's emails. Uh, I think the math was done. And this was something like 30 to 35 emails a day during his vice presidency, where you know he knew nothing about his family's business and uh, didn't in any way profit from it, et cetera, et cetera. Who knows what is in these eighty-two thousand emails to all of these pseudonymous addresses? But it appears that document production is actually underway. We'll see if this occurs at snail's pace or not. If anything can be done to expedite that process, but obviously this could potentially be a treasure trove for those seeking to unearth evidence of who knew what, when, and what the consequences were of the Biden family business being. I would argue, the selling out of America via then vice president, now president of the United States. Uh, against that backdrop, though, there were some major revelations in recent days regarding the DOJ's and FBI's efforts, uh, as I've argued, to essentially obstruct justice, not to pursue leads associated with the Biden family influence pet business, business, uh, not to interview witnesses to prevent those agents who actually wanted to go about bringing charges or pursuing leads associated with the charges to prevent them, forbid them from doing so, delay and run out statutes of limitation, etc. Chuck Grassley has really been an unsung hero on this in the Senate. It's kind of felt like he's had all the answers and been slow playing the cards that he has to show, to demonstrate in the starkest terms that the DOJ and FBI Have been uh, not only negligent but maybe criminally negligent in not pursuing criminality associated with the Biden family. He put out a letter uh, where he laid out a number of major allegations last week, and this is to, I believe, both uh, Attorney General Garland and FBI Director Ray. So, a few revelations from that letter: one, he says at one point in time, the FBI maintained over 40 confidential human sources, that is informants, that provided criminal, critical information relating. To joe biden james biden and hunter biden uh, he also mentions the fact that in december 2019 the washington field office had closed a kleptocracy case into mikola Zlachevsky, who who's the owner of burisma in business with the biden's supposedly allegedly made a bribe to both biden's five million dollars each which was opened in january 2016 by a foreign corrupt practices act fbi squad based out of what fbi's washington field office which means a bribery-related investigation, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Grassley writes, My office has been informed that the FBI agents and DOJ officials working the Pittsburgh assessment. The Pittsburgh assessment is a reference to the DOJ's collection of evidence regarding Biden family influence peddling in 2020. They served as kind of a clearinghouse for vetting the legitimacy of information about the Biden family and then parceled it out to various FBI and DOJ offices. Officials working the Pittsburgh assessment had to pause their work for weeks at a time because the assessment had to be reapproved every 30 days by multiple DOJ and FBI officials. He talks about the FBI's foreign influence task force shutting down the pursuit of leads in August or or before August 2020 relating to the Bidens. Uh, beyond that, he notes that U.S. Attorney Weiss in Delaware, now special counsel ran the biden case as a money-wandering and fair investigation rather than a bribery investigation despite uh, these bribery allegations that existed then we've gotten some reporting including from margot cleveland at the federalist who's just done excellent work on all things biden related and doj fbi corruption related that there was this interview that the u.s attorney for the western district of pennsylvania scott Bright, brady sat for a transcribed interview with the house judiciary committee He was leading this office that dealt with all of the incoming evidence associated with the Bidens, vetting it, parceling it out. He said during this interview that even simple requests to the FBI and DOJ, like extending the assessment, again, as Grassby noted, required a renewal every 30 days. Brady said it required, quote, 17 different people, including mostly at the headquarters level, to sign off on it before (laughs) the assessment could be extended. Another direct quote, we were told by the special agents they had to go pens down sometimes for two or three weeks at a time before they could re-engage and take additional steps, because they were still waiting on, again, someone within the 17 chain to signify or approve. Uh, He said he'd never before in his career career seen that. FBI headquarters was required to get sign-off for any investigative steps that FBI Pittsburgh was asked to take. And there was reluctance on the part of the FBI to really do any tasking related to our assignment and looking into allegations of Ukrainian corruption broadly, and then specifically anything that intersected with Hunter Biden and his role in Last but not least, we don't even have time to go into the details, but there's this $200,000 quote-unquote quote, unquote, loan repayment from Jim Biden, $200,000 that apparently he had received from a, a collapsing company, AmeriCorps, $200,000 that he received based on his promise that he would influence pedal with an unknown Middle Eastern entity. Uh, and then that $200,000 goes to Joe Biden, noted as a loan repayment, which is notable because the Biden's apparently received a lot of funds that were characterized as loans even though we've never seen the terms of them so put all this together you have basically the biden family business being commingled with government business explicitly via these pseudonymous email addresses you have fbi and doj doing everything they can not to pursue and i would argue probably to find and bury leads that they can often under guise of uh, this is misinformation or disinformation that's coming across the wire Um, And then, of course, you have the actual check to Joe Biden, the first of potentially many, based upon what investigators have said. So I guess the question is this, at the end of the day, are we going to be left with a series of reports from the House right before the 2024 presidential election, and then the referendum to the American people is going to be, do you want to vote for a compromised and corrupted figure who should be impeached? Would there ultimately be more than one or several impeachment inquiry hearings where do you think this all goes and what actually is the proper political strategy here
3: um i guess i'll I'll go ahead on that um i think with the power that they have that's really all that we can hope for from the republican house on this front like just hopefully do some investigations and generate sufficient fodder to discredit biden um, based on his, you know, genuinely discredited based on his own conduct. We're not talking about fake nonsense. This is real, obviously. And uh, it's appalling that he's able to get away with it. So I think that the strategy, I mean, that was always the strategy from the beginning. And I mean, it sort of connects to the speaker debate where people were expecting all these things of a, a small Republican House majority. And I always thought from the beginning, like the one most important thing that they can do is investigations. Um, they don't have the no power to pass legislation on their own, but they can investigate and and really make life hard for the Democrats for, for this period. That said, I mean, all this just reminds me, I, can, I cannot stand listening to Democrats talk about how no one is above the law. Clearly, the Democrats are, in fact, above the law when they, when they have this power. And, you know, it's also, it's very galling because they say it with this air of, you know, essentially moral certitude. But you don't demonstrate that nobody is above the law by prosecuting your political opponents. You demonstrate it by prosecuting people on your own team. And they do not do that except in the most egregious cases where you've got guys like Menendez with gold bars sewn into their sewn into their jackets. Um, I'd like to, you know, I don't want to hear no one is above the law from anybody involved in the Biden administration ever again. Your boss is above the law. That much is obvious. To maybe make a contrarian point, I do get worried occasionally
2: that this series of investigations could become to President Biden the way that the series of impeachment inquiries became towards President Trump in the previous presidency, which is to say it becomes noise. Um, Swing voters, independent voters, um, and frankly, just people who aren't extremely engaged in the right-wing media ecosystem are going to eventually just see it as white noise coming through the advertisements and the uh, political speeches that they're hearing as people are trying to get their votes next year. Um, It's pretty clear That for whatever reason, this is not becoming the anchoring reason that people are not approving of Biden's performance in his presidency. They're much more focused on the border. They're much more focused on the economy. Um, There's all sorts of reasons that have to do with the perfidy of the media and the total absence of integrity in our ruling class in this country for that being the case. But it is the case. And I just, really hope that the Republican conference's argument for reelection come this time next year is something more than we investigated Biden a lot.
0: It, it's definitely, and I guess I alluded to this a little bit earlier, um, difficult to, as Ben does, follow all of the news on the subject. And I think that's uh, obviously, a, I, I know we talk about this a lot, but I think that's obviously something of a statement on uh, the state of the country that some of these revelations that would have shocked the church committee uh, when they were you know, looking into uh, previous iterations of this kind of imperial executive branch. Um, and would have shocked the conscience of the country and, and would have led to reform, um, although, of course, like FISA itself is a product of the church committee. That was one of the reforms we were supposed to feel really good about um, after the church committee and has been abused, um, are kind of water under the bridge. And uh, there's something that's really true about what Saurabh said in that people have material concerns um, that you know, gas prices are crazy. Uh, If you want to take it alone and get a car, good luck. Like interest rates are crushing people. It's a, it's, you know, people are are genuinely, um, you know, going through it right now and don't necessarily have time in their their head for every update on the Hunter Biden saga um, and on the DOJ's corruption. Although um, all of this makes it easier for that corruption to sort of fester and uh, metastasize uh, in the shadows of of our attention, so it's almost a catch twenty two. It's a tough situation, um, but it does. I don't know. At least for me, it never fails to shock uh, every time I'm looking at like records that have come out of the CIA and see this the audacity that they have to put some of this stuff, or the DOJ, the audacity they have to put some of this in writing. All right. We're going to move on to the next topic, and that's will on the ground war beginning in Gaza.
3: Right on. Um, so as if you're following the news, you're seeing that Israel has started serious ground operations in Gaza. What it looks like they're doing is, you know, put moving tanks and um, personnel into kind of surrounding Gaza City in the north. You know, they already had this evacuation that they asked for and they, you know, created the humanitarian zone of the South. and They're trying to essentially put, you know, Gaza, encircle Gaza and try and prevent people, I think, essentially to deal with the tunnel network. But I, what I, I think the thing I really wanted to talk about today was essentially two arguments that I'm seeing percolate, uh, both on right and left-wing Twitter, but on right-wing Twitter more than I would have anticipated. The first being that Israel shouldn't invade due to, you know, the risk of a broader, regional conflict. And, and then the second one being coming from people like Douglas McGregor being like, we need Biden to step in and protect Israel from itself and stop it from invading, you know, on the grounds that Israel would be doing itself some sort of harm. So I want to kind of address each of those those in turn. So the, the underlying question of like, should Israel invade? You know, we're, I'm seeing arguments from a variety of people, including Scott Horton, who in a debate in a couple of weeks on TimCast, uh, that Basically, like Israel should take the lesson of the United States about the wisdom of military intervention and not intervene in Gaza. And I think what's sort of happened on the right, and this is that we've been so blackpilled by the utter failure of Afghanistan and Iraq that we've sort of forgotten that there are some just wars and there are some just military interventions, and not every one of them is doomed to failure. Um, So, you know, for example, comparing the attempt to, you know, in regime change in Afghanistan, for instance, okay, well, that's a country halfway across the world from the United States that's the size of, I don't know, Texas, or it's a very large country. And a uh, very, very hilly mountainous terrain is terrible. Whereas Israel has Gaza right in its border. It's you know 25 miles by eight. It's about the size of Las Vegas. It clearly has the ability to do so. But moreover, it has much more of an obvious ethical responsibility to do so. The most basic responsibility of any state is the protection of its own citizens. Its citizens were massacred Two to three weeks ago. And if it can't defend itself, if it can't eliminate the terrorist organization on its border, then what is the point of the state of Israel? Right? What is the point of any government if it can't protect your citizens from being massacred? That's why states exist. That's the most foundational responsibility of the state. So I see this argument about them not needing to invade as just being kind of silly and not and not really understanding that they just absolutely have an obligation to. Um, but secondly, I think there's this interesting notion that if Biden put enough pressure on Israel, they could be deterred from an invasion. I think that's just a real misunderstanding of the Israeli mood and a misunderstanding of how dramatic the events of 10-7 were. Like, obviously, yes, the United States have some amount of influence over the Israeli government. It's, you know, as the leader of the free world. But when Israel suffers a massacre of this magnitude, there there wouldn't be any deterring it. There's nothing Biden could say or threaten that would get the state of Israel to say, no, we're just going to leave Hamas alone after this. I mean, they would lose all credibility with their own people. They'd be risked being replaced, you know, instantly by some new government that would be willing to take the fight to Hamas. Um, And it's it's also, it's just extraordinarily patronizing for people like Doug McGregor to say things like, well, Israel needs to be protected from itself. It's like as though they're like a small child and and don't know what's in their best interests. I think Israel is a very competent military that's probably planned for something in Gaza for quite a bit of time. They're also a very historically successful military, unlike recently the United States military. Um, we haven't had any sort of brilliant military victories like what Israel had in 1967 with the Six Days War. So I think in general, I think it's pretty obvious Israel has a firm obligation to eliminate the threat posed by Hamas. And I think that the idea that Biden, even if he wanted to, could put enough pressure on Israel to get them to reconsider, uh, I think that's that's quite silly. And instead, I think in general, the, the National Conservative perspective here should just be to recognize Israel has a clear fundamental national interest to protect its own citizens. We expect America to protect American citizens first. Why It shouldn't be that hard to understand that Israel feeds, feels a need to protect Israeli citizens first and foremost.
0: I continue to think, especially uh, in the spin on my mind, as the scenes from the ground invasion have started to uh, come onto social media. Uh, it. It's really I've been reading a lot about perspectives from Vietnam and media theorists, um, and I think we take for granted how new uh, this concept of sort of watching a war play out in real time up close and personal. So seeing the suffering of other human beings uh, from the screen of your phone, just like you would film yourself if people are are live streaming as some people were at the music festival, uh, but then also seeing human beings inflict the suffering on other people in the same way. Uh, So for instance, you know, and this is particularly uh, poignant, thinking back to October 7th, there were videos uh, that we got from like ring cameras of torture Um, And people being burned, uh, it it just like defies uh, the imagination and in a way that's, uh, you know, not normal. They were talking about this a little bit on Red Scare recently. And uh, one, I think like Dasha was like, well, the the BAP take would be that we need to sort of steel ourselves to this level of of cruelty and that we're sort of not used to you know, this very natural and human, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this very natural and human phenomenon of of, of watching this up close. Um, I don't think, I don't think it's true necessarily, because I think what we're exposed to in the age of social media uh, is, is something that is unusual in the course of human history to see people that you have never met, you never know. um, But to see them going through, I mean, just unthinkable, uh, brutalities, um, and, and now that does extend to what's happening in Gaza. And when you see these videos, people lose sight of um, the reality of, of the human condition, um, that war is the reality of the human condition and that Israel can't exist if it does not try to annihilate Hamas. And the only way to try to annihilate Hamas is to go into Gaza. Uh, it can't give up on those points. Uh, it can it can do its very best to wage a just war, but war is still war. Uh, and, and Israel at this point cannot exist, exist safely without war. And I think that's incredibly difficult um, for us to wrap our heads around. Uh, obviously, we got a little... You know, not a little, but we got a huge dose of this in, during the Vietnam War, um, and I, I feel like this is sort of echoing that. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that uh, Israel is, you know, surrounded by a territory governed by people that are terrorists that wish that it didn't exist and that want to wipe Jews off the face of the earth. Uh, and there's no equivalence there whatsoever period um and so just as the ground invasion is starting my thoughts are just that how this is going to shape public opinion um in the era of of social media um that's a scary thing because we're about to see it but a much kind of longer um more extended you know october 7th was horrific it was one day as this plays out over the course of weeks um I think that's going to shape public opinion in some uh, given where our media is at, as Ben has been documenting um, in some you know unfortunate ways, some good ways, but some really bad ways too.
2: Just on the point about the center right people that are opposing increased um, involvement or uh, a more aggressive action on behalf of Israel in Gaza. Um, it is important to note that there are bipartisan forces in the United States that are looking to use this conflict as the vehicle to start the war with Iran that they have wanted for the last 20 years. And so um, I am much more open-minded to the criticisms coming from a Douglas McGregor or a Tucker Carlson or a Vivek Ramaswamy or any other figure that is urging caution because – Nothing would make the neoconservatives in Washington happier than for the domino chain that occurs geopolitically over the next few months to play out in a way that it allows them to engage in the wars that they have wanted to and not had a casus belli to um, for many, many years. And so the more concerned we can be about that on the front end, the long tail of disastrous consequences that could come on the back end get heavily attenuated.
1: Um, So I guess a a few points. Um, First on the, you know, Will's kind of broader point. Yeah, I mean, I don't think any other state in the world would be held to the standard that Israel is being held if 50,000, the equivalent of 50,000 Americans were massacred, raped, butchered, mutilated, taken hostage. Uh, The notion that then the U.S. would be Uh, The world would call on the U.S. to cease fire the next day is ludicrous, asinine, absurd. Uh, How Israel goes about its ultimate destruction of Hamas, nothing that it does will ultimately satisfy people who hate the Jewish state and ultimately hate the Jewish people. I mean, this is a military that drops leaflets and gives people more than fair warning. It has uh, conceded to the idea of resupplying Um, effectively Hamas in terms of quote-unquote humanitarian aid to a place that's controlled by a jihadist group that wants its annihilation, uh, nothing it does will ever satisfy those who loathe it. So uh, if it's between being loved and dead or loathed and respected, uh, I think we know what position is the rational one for Israel to take. Um, In terms of Biden himself, and I'll probably lay this out in a piece at some point because I've been kind of collecting all of the instances of the administration pressuring, coercing, micromanaging Israel's response, which the anti-interventionists should be against firmly. I mean, the actual, the right national interest-oriented perspective on this, as I've argued from the start, for America is stop providing aid and comfort and abetting and enabling Iran and all of its proxies, and let Israel do what it wants to do and feels it needs to do to defend its national interest and its sovereignty. And that will ultimately redound to our benefit. That's been my belief from the start. But for Biden, he is pulled between both ideological and political issues here. On the ideological side, the entire status quo was make Iran and its proxies the strong course in the region. It's a third Obama term, effectively. Obama also elevated Sunni and Shia Islamic supremacist forces in the region. That was the whole reorientation of our policy, uh, which Trump undid, but Biden has put back on the front burner. Uh, and then at, at the same time, as to put the screws to and punish Israel and seek to destabilize Israel and ultimately topple BB, who Biden loads and most of the left loads. Uh, and then on a political level, beyond maintaining that status quo which has crumbled before the administration's eyes there's also the fact that joe biden doesn't want to lose college students he doesn't want to lose the uh, oppressed oppressor marxian focused elites and he doesn't want to lose critical votes in places like dearborn michigan for example and no matter what he does it seems like he, he may well lose those kinds of votes but he has these different ideological and political forces pulling him in certain directions, uh, which is going to play a huge role in what the ultimate U.S. response is. I guess on the last point um, I'll make with respect to, you know, the concerns of some who think this leads to a global war. And obviously, uh, there's every possibility that something like that could happen. But what I would say is that for Israel to show caution actually will increase the odds of ultimately that massive war. If Israel is incredibly strong and it actually preempts and maybe ultimately defuses a multi-front war by striking aggressively and decisively way beyond Hamas, I believe, counterintuitively, that actually will forestall a much greater war. Conversely, the more Israel is constrained, the greater the odds that there's not only a barrage of tens or hundreds of thousands of rockets and missiles from hezbollah in the north but we've already seen ballistic missiles and drones coming from yemen which is apparently formally entered into a war and it's only going to increase the odds the longer this goes that israel suffers multi-front attacks and is only allowed to respond after suffering a catastrophic strike so the counterintuitive play is america should get out of the way let israel pursue its national interests, stop aiding and abetting and enabling all of its enemies and ours And it may well be that a much more decisive and strong response far beyond Hamas actually prevents the massive regional or global conflict that many, I think, are fear-mongering about.
0: All right, Zoram, you're up next.
2: In the grand scheme of things, the topic I want to talk about is not nearly as big as the Biden DOJ or peace and war, but I think it's important because it lays out one of the fundamental differences between what people who call themselves national conservatives or dissident to the uh, old guard conservative movement in any way have with that old guard. Uh, Today, I want to talk about a fight between Uh, FIRE, which is called the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, and Hillsdale College, widely seen as sort of the crown jewel of the conservative higher education model in the United States. What happened is uh, recently FIRE gave Hillsdale College a quote unquote, warning rating for their campus speech codes. Now, Fire puts together the spotlight database that includes policy ratings for 486 different four-year college and universities across the country. And they basically rate the extent to which written student regulations infringe on speech that's protected under the First Amendment standards, both the public and private schools. That's their language, not mine. And the criteria that they typically use to assess schools is that basically public institutions are legally bound to follow First Amendment standards, uh, but private schools um, have uh, you know, the ability to set whatever standards they want, and they are looking to endorse or evaluate school- those private schools based on their commitment to free speech. Now, Hillsdale College, as one can imagine as this Exemplary institution of conservative education in the United States is unequivocally fantastic on free speech, according to FIRE's own metrics. In fact, um, when FIRE did their student survey across the entire country, measuring every single school there is, Hillsdale College regularly got number one on people's uh, comfort expressing ideas on their belief that disruptive conduct um, is bad, openness to new ideas, administrative support, and so on. And specifically on tolerance for speakers, they got number one in the entire country. And so it's very unusual that given this exemplary record that FIRE would choose to take this perspective, but it's worth diving into the reason why, because I think it exposes the real difference between people who think like us and others. FIRE's complaint is essentially that Hillsdale College is not allowing the campus to turn into a zoo. Um, They're willing to allow for people to express any kind of idea they want on campus, as long as they do it in a way that is civil and thoughtful. What they don't want is to see the protests, screaming matches, and fistfights that break out at other campuses across the United States. And so because Hillsdale College, as part of their moral and ethical framework for the kind of education they believe should exist in the United States, um, has decided to uplift a kind of civility um, and open discourse as central to their mission. FIRE says that that is in contradiction to its stated values of free speech. Um, But that's only their very public uh, reason for opposing uh, Hillsdale College. Again, the statistics on this don't really bear out in terms of Hillsdale's own reputation for speech values. Later, in their response to a Wall Street Journal op-ed that Larry Aaron, the president of Hillsdale College, had in the Wall Street Journal opposing FIRE's warning rating, uh, they actually got to the real point, the, the real issue that they have, which is that Hillsdale's regulations uh, ban quote unquote lewd and indecent expression. And here we get to the rub, which is that Hillsdale is a Christian college and it is a conservative college that is trying to foster moral virtue in its student body. This uh, cannot be abided by the libertarians that run many important center-right organizations. and is valuable um uh um as a valuable example of what the risks we have in our coalition in the coming years as conservatives actually take back institutions it cannot simply be the case that the extent of win condition for conservatives um, in the coming years is to have these quote-unquote neutral principles at public institutions, private institutions, or what have you. We have to aim for more. And anyone who's been to Hillsdale College and anyone who has seen the actual educational environment they've created there sees an example of what that something more could look like, an actually conservative, virtuous community that is aimed towards substantive ends. What FIRE is showing itself to be is an opponent of that kind of substantively conservative agenda. In fact, they've even indicated so in, in other venues. Um, many people will recall that uh, they actually opposed Governor DeSantis's Stop Woke Act uh, earlier this year when he passed legislation trying to ban critical race theory from K through 12 schools and prevent state funding from going towards that kind of racial nonsense. Fire was vociferous in saying that this was a quote unquote violation of free speech um, And so it, it just shows the poverty of FIRE's vision of what free expression in the United States looks like. It's basically the ability for whatever status quo ante that liberals and progressives have created to stay in place as the status quo. They have no affirmative vision for what the future of education or of political discourse in the United States looks like. And they're going to more than likely be allies to the enemies of the right in the coming years if this track record is anything to go by.
0: And I'll jump in here just as somebody who used to be like in the camp where I would read an op-ed like fires and be like, oh, well, yes, of course, um, the more speech, the better, uh, the less government intervention over speech and thought, the better. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's I think, an easy reflex um, for conservatives in this age of intense, you know, when I was in college and, you know, was w- w- firmly in that camp. I was constantly being like, my YAF chapter was constantly under attack and, you know, they were trying to get us off campus and all that good stuff. You're the sort of primary victim of uh, these attempts to silence speech. Um, But Hillsdale is a private institution and fire acknowledges this. Uh, Hillsdale is not a government institution. And I have a a different take probably than everyone here on uh, the stop woke act. Like I actually did have like some concerns. I think it was, on the overall, it was a great thing. And then I had some concerns with some of the language, but wasn't out there like whining about how Ron DeSantis was trying to destroy free speech because he wasn't. Um, But the point remains that, like, I I think these speech concerns are really real. I have a probably a different take than Larry Arne does about public institutions, uh, because Hillsdale is in this very interesting school of thought that used to be common in the United States, which is that and in the West, which is that speech exists for our edification. It exists to cultivate virtue. Free speech is a means to a virtuous end. It is is not um in and of itself just it, it doesn't just exist in and of itself so that we can engage willy-nilly uh in random you know acts of verbal violence it exists to cultivate virtue and that's where the tradition of free speech that's what the western tradition of free speech is is rooted in and i think you know in a private institution it's appropriate for Larry Arnn to say that is what we are engaged in. Not only do I think it's appropriate and fire should understand that mission is essential, uh, to protecting the boundaries of expression, um, but I, I think it's you know, it's a well within their right, and and b it it is virtuous in and of itself. So uh, I think there are just distinctions that the right has sort of and fire isn't really on the right. It has some right leaning allies, but um, that have gotten sort of ironed out in this age of conservatives being you know targeted in ways that previously felt like uh, you know. Eugene McCarthy going after uh, libs maybe um the, it was just kind of easy to let those distinctions take those distinctions for granted um i think those distinctions are completely salient uh are fascinating and worth consideration um and larry arn is uh, a hero
3: <laughs> yeah um i think the idea that lewd and indecent speech is and banning it is this massive threat to free speech more broadly is just flat wrong um there's you know the, the, what is the the entire purpose of free speech is to facilitate the exchange of ideas so when you're talking about what the right is trying to protect the right of speakers to be heard even if they're controversial etc like that's at the core of a lot of what a university is for to facilitate exchange of ideas but if you're talking about lewdness and indecency well it's it's like abolishing the idea that there could be such a thing as a christian college with a christian culture on campus like and it's not about the expression of specific ideas you you can express them without you know like being lewd (laughs) like being i don't don't know is this what is the ascent what are we trying to protect here? like pornography obscenity um that's not necessary for at all for the exchange of ideas and i don't think that that jives the supreme court precedent at all Especially obviously not with a private college, but moreover, just the general, well, you know, what is it that the First Amendment was is there to protect? Um, you know, I mean, it seems like they want to go down the absolutist libertarian rabbit hole where it's like, well, okay, if if all ideas and all speech must be protected, even in the broadest sense, and including looted and decent speech, then you're basically suggesting porn should be given to children, which is clearly wrong and clearly appalling. Um, and so once and since we all agree on that, it seems like we should at least recognize that it's not a broader threat to free speech and that Hillsdale isn't damaging free speech by simply saying that looted indecent conduct and loot and decent speech on its campus won't be allowed.
1: So, uh, Dr. Arne in that uh, Wall Street Journal article, he writes what the speech code is at Hillsdale, and I think it's worth stating how eminently reasonable this is. You may assert and defend any argument you conceive as long as you do so in a way that is civil, academic, and conducive to thought and deliberation. Now that probably counts as a novel speech code relative to most academic institutions. Thank God there's at least one of them out there, and there are obviously some notable exceptions that would actually believe in the letter and spirit of that speech code. Uh, to me, with this sort of issue, and I'm, you know, certainly an, a big First Amendment advocate. As we talk about, you know, government censorship of speech directly and by proxy through social media platforms and in a whole slew of other institutions. Obviously, there's the public-private distinction here. But beyond that, there's a more fundamental issue, I think, which is this notion of these neutral institutions. Well, first of all, these institutions don't arise from a neutral vision. They arise from a very direct vision, particularly that of the academy, for example, which is about not only debating ideas, but ultimately cultivating virtue, should be about cultivating virtue, and ultimately uh, inculcating in people, uh, both in their intellectual skills um, and, and curiosity, and also contributing to human flourishing at the end of the day. Now, obviously our institutions pretty much seem like they're devoted to the opposite of that in large measure, but that wasn't the purpose of them. But that also points to the fact that the need to defend those institutions, values neutral ultimately to me always end up like a recipe for destruction by illiberals and tyrants. Because if you say, well, all of these ideas are equal and you know they all have to be treated as equivalent. And that means that you can't have a code like this. Well, every single time the illiberals are going to dominate and subjugate ultimately the liberals. I, I sort of think of it like Religion in schools, when you talk about removing religion from schools, where well, they say, well, this is about neutrality, but then it's about imposing an anti-religion in the schools. So it's not really values neutral. It's we actually want the progressive tyrannical vision, anti-religion, statist anti-religion to dominate. So at the end of the day, the values neutral thing, to me, ends up looking like a dodge. And it actually looks like opposition to the actual values that underlie all of these institutions that we cherish and which this entire project has been built on.
0: Let's move on to final thoughts. Who wants to start off? My light just turned off.
3: (laughs) I guess I'll throw, a fi- I'll throw a final thought out there. Uh, you should check out uh, Governor Ron DeSantis' interview with Patrick Bet-David. Um, he did, I think he did an excellent job. And and in particular, and I'm not just saying that because I used to be employed by the guy. In particular, he gave an incredible answer about the need to uh, essentially defeat the left in the institutions. And, you know, we basically, I, I have a medium term thesis that like, this is, you know, we are, we are staring like our version of Naya Bukele in the face and, you know, it's really, really the thing we should be thinking about more is trying to get this guy over the top. I'll just
2: add as a final thought, um, you know, one of the things that that I'm motivated by a lot is seeing the national conservative vision of American politics instantiated in the halls of, of actual power in Washington. And it's it's pretty clear that, you know, we have this cadre of a couple of senators that are doing fantastic work um, in, in fleshing out this agenda. You have folks like Senator J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio, and others that are doing a great job. But we've always had a little bit of an anemic bench in the House. And I think that that's probably going to change next year. You had candidates that are already announced, like Riley Moore and Joe Kent, that I see is squarely within um, that vision of politics. But um, just last week, my very good friend, Blake Masters, announced his candidacy for Congress. And um, I just think that Over the next couple of years, we're going to start to see the green shoots of this worldview, this approach to conservative politics um, really take hold. And it's going to be through fantastic, charismatic people like Blake and others. uh, Because, um, you know, as I said, I think in in the launch op ed for the organization I run, you know, we we can't just write essays at each other until we all die. We we actually have to govern. And so um, there's, there's lots of exciting things on the horizon on that front.
1: I'll follow that uh, optimistic with a uh, pessimistic take, but it shouldn't detract at all from the fact that um, small minorities and sometimes small minorities that actually represent maybe silent majorities do ultimately triumph and certainly actually wielding power when we take it is a huge win and a massive more than an incremental shift in the conservative movement and obviously a hugely positive one, maybe the defining characteristic to some extent of national conservatism might be the practical aspect of it over the ideological aspect. Uh, But setting that aside, um, I will say, just to kind of close the loop on the whole impeachment conversation, one of the demoralizing things is, yes, these are very complicated, myriad details, uh, not easily explained in one to three sentences, and they have to be, and they have to be explained in one to three sentences and then repeated over and over again to have any impact on the public. But I get the sense that even if the public knew the president took bribes, he's sold us out to communist China and a whole slew of other powers, and you can draw a direct link from being compromised and sold out to all the chaos unfolding in the world in front of us today, that still might not lead people to care about impeaching the president. And maybe that's a commentary on Biden. Maybe that's a commentary on how desensitized the public has become to how gross the corruption is in Washington, or maybe there's some third alternative to that, but it's a very depressing place to be in that obviously all the evidence could be right before you. And even if it was laid out in pristine and crystal clear and compelling fashion, it's still not clear that it would move anyone, nor that the people who you would need for it to move for there to be some kind of sea change would even observe it today, despite the fact that we have access to more media and ideas than we ever have in the history of mankind. So- uh, it's a it's sort of a sad state of affairs and a sad commentary on our body politic, but we'll see what happens in twenty twenty four.
0: I'll just uh, mention some breaking news today from Real Clear Politics, Phil Boyman, that Josh Hawley is introducing a bill, legis- a, a bill piece of legislation uh, to end Citizens United, and he has uh, defended this bill, which would have been, I mean, just absolutely anathema. It would have been what kicked out of the conservative movement, probably for introducing something like this not too long ago. Uh, But he's defended this decision, I think, with excellent language, um, essentially talking about the need, echoing some people on the left, to uh, suck corporate power out of our elections and uh, out of our politics. And that, you know, does sound like a silly leftist talking point circa 2012. Um, And there are there is, an enormous effort on behalf of the left uh, to use corporate power and to undercut the power of you know conservatives who don't have cultural power in any other centers other than elections, politics, because they don't control Hollywood, they don't control Wall Street. Um, and you know that's a, a huge, huge concern. It's like one of the the few places conservatives have power. So uh, all I'm saying here, is i know we've actually talked about this we've we've kicked this idea around orin cass has talked about it a little bit uh, I'm fascinated to see where this conversation goes, because uh, whether or not ending Citizens United itself is the right answer, there it is essential for conservatives to have a conversation about campaign finance and money and politics. Uh, just it, it, like there there may be legislative solutions that aren't exactly ending Citizens United. There may be state-based solutions. Um, you know, in, in 2020, every Democrat basically swore off corporate PAC money. Republicans are so dumb, they didn't have that conversation in their own primary that's playing out in front of them. Uh, so dumb and corrupt. I guess it's a combination of both. Um, It just feels like too much of an uphill battle. Um, So it's absolutely time for the right to revisit this conversation, not to necessarily say um, that Citizens United, you know, was, was entirely wrong. Remember that was a Clinton uh, documentary. That was well, documentary, a Clinton, an anti-Clinton ad that was at issue there. So I get it. it. There are reasonable concerns here, but it's time to have that conversation. And I'm super glad that Senator Hawley is doing it. So on that note, on behalf of Ben, Sarab, who I'm so glad was able to join us, and Will, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinski, and we will see you at the next NatCon Squad.